I missed out on so much life because it was always this concept of like, hey, do you want to go on a boat today? Like, yeah, I mean, if you guys want to wait till two or three after the gym, I'll, I'll definitely go. If not, don't worry about it. And I, I mean, that was a once in a lifetime opportunity when instead I'm just stuck in the gym doing the same thing, beating up my body. Um, so I've definitely, and through recovery, through realizing it's not the end of the world if you, you know, and actually how much more I enjoy life when I eat a donut or go out to ice cream with my girlfriend versus not doing it. Um, it's really helped me find myself and who I am and, and given me a lot more strength as a person. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's podcast. Today, you're going to hear the conversation that I had with Patrick Diveni, who talks to me about his experience with bulimia. And I'm really thrilled to have him on because I don't get enough men willing to talk to me about these things. And that's not to say that I don't get enough men talking to me via email or any other form about eating disorders. I do. I get a lot of contact from guys. I almost get 50-50 between women and men contacting me about eating disorders. But the guys are much less willing to come forward and talk to me on a podcast or publicly. And that's very understandable because there's enough discrimination and stereotyping around eating disorders that affects us women sufferers. So let alone what affects guys. A lot of people just don't get it. They don't understand that these are mental illnesses and they do not discriminate between men and women. They do not discriminate between young and old. They do not discriminate between races. It, it's a mental illness and nobody is is um, out of the danger zone of getting an eating disorder. So thrilled to have Patrick on. He tells us about how he first of all, recognized that he had bulimia and then how he went on to find information about it and then ultimately how he went on to embark on recovery. And Patrick is still in recovery now. He's very clear about that. It's a working progress, but he is at the point where he is so um, well forward in his recovery and confident in it that he's happy to come and talk to people like me and offer himself as inspiration to other men and women who are struggling from eating disorders. Here's the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. The first thing that I asked Patrick was to tell us a little bit about himself. Long story short would be I pretty much grew up focused my entire life on um, athletics and academics and like I said, I went to the University of Colorado, played football there from 2005 to 2009, and then had an opportunity, more or less a cup of coffee up in Seattle with the Seahawks, and then was released. And at that point in time was kind of, I think, the start of disordered eating. And um, from there, kind of once I lost football and that career ended, it kind of became a now what phase of life for me and really kind of lost my identity. And the last six years have been and still is a progress of trying to figure out who I am, what I want to do um, with my life when I grow up, that kind of scenario. So it's been a very interesting time. I would say 
the biggest thing that I've noticed, and especially because it took me so long to realize I did have a disordered eating, um, was really focusing in, in athletics. And what I was introduced to probably my junior or senior year was this concept of good versus bad foods. This idea that if you want to perform at your peak, you need to be eating only chicken, broccoli, um, you know, very little carbs, very little fat. And I really dove into that because what happened post-Colorado when I was training for an opportunity in the NFL, um, you really, especially in my, you know, I was talented. However, I knew I had to be at my absolute peak in order to even get a shot. And to achieve that level of fitness, um, that is where I pretty much started incorporating and eliminating a lot of foods. And to put it in context, I mean, you kind of get your shot. All the scouts in the NFL show up to the campus and they come in and, and all the guys that are trying to perform in front of the scouts, they have to walk in basically and just, you know, shirtless, they're getting examined, they're measuring every part of your body, measuring your body fat, your height, weight, all the above. So you really start to kind of desire a certain physique and, um, really starts to put an emphasis on what you look like and whether that's right, wrong or indifferent, it's just kind of the nature of the beast with playing sports. You need to kind of look the best at all times. And, um, from there, once I was released, a big part of it became, like I had mentioned, it was a, a huge kind of now what phase of life. And I lost my identity and didn't know what I wanted to do. The hard part with sports and, and kind of living your dream is you understand what it's like to be passionate about something and go to work every day and work as hard as you can and wake up excited. And every job that I've taken thus far, I can't find that same excitement. And it may be because I'm a Pisces, but it also may be because I just have experienced that level of excitement. Um, but once I lost that identity, it kind of became fitness and this dream that if I, like the only thing I could relate to was like, I better be in the best shape ever because if I go and try to talk, I'm a single and I try to date somebody, I need to make sure that I have 0% body fat and all these body image conversations thinking that if I weighed a certain amount and had this low body fat, then I could impress people in my life. I would be happy at that point. And no matter how skinny I got, and I cycled weight drastically, um, I never achieved any sort of great happiness or direction in my life, but it was always something I was aimed at. So over the last couple of years, um, it really, as more and more uncertainty came into my life, I really started to eliminate foods. And what had happened in the last probably two or three years was... I went almost like a paleo version where it was only vegetables, very little fruit, and a lot of protein. And I would go to the gym and work out like crazy. And what ended up happening, I had moved down to Mexico and started binging really hard. And every night, I mean, there was multiple times I had um, <laughs> probably spent... $50, $60 worth of food and it was gone in about 20 minutes. And because I had 
so much control over my diet. Those that hour worth of binging and being out like this out of body experience was almost relieving. And then as soon as it would end, I would go into this extreme depression or get really hard on myself for, you know, being perfect in my diet all day long. And then all of a sudden now it's completely gone. And, and there had been, I mean, pretty much for months, I was eating close to four or five boxes of cereal a night. And um, I would wake up the next morning, go to the gym for three hours in a, in a form of punishment, trying to sweat out all of the calories I had taken in then I wouldn't eat all day long, hoping that I would um, get back on the right track and kind of maintain my diet. But then, of course, because I had eliminated all foods throughout the day and then hoped to have a small dinner and start back over, I would then binge again that night. And it was all because I was, anytime I started to get anxious, I would run to the, run to the pantry. So... It really hit rock bottom for me when I realized that how much of life I was missing out on. I was scared to eat with my friends, to leave my house. This concept of not being able to control what I was going to eat for dinner as far as like going to a restaurant was horrifying. And my pantry basically only consisted of like oatmeal, um, meats in the fridge, and vegetables because I knew I wouldn't really binge on those at night. But the minute I had anything in my house, otherwise it would be gone that day. Or even if I would go to a friend's house, I was so common that I would sneak around the house and I'd look in their pantries and if they had, I don't even know, like granola or something, I would just raid their pantries. And the minute they would come out, I would drop it and act like I wasn't doing it. It was just such a terrible experience. And um, I started to kind of look into it as to what was happening. And I was fortunate to come across a podcast. Um, it was all about food disorders and I couldn't believe how much I could relate to what Megan was talking about. So at that point in time, I really started looking into this concept of a food disorder and bulimia and binge eating and trying to figure out what it was. And I couldn't identify with any male out there. There was nobody that I could, that had a male that was basically saying I had been through this or any of that stuff. It was heavily dominated by women and it just didn't seem possible. And that was actually a, when I reached out to a guest that's been on your podcast and luckily she had written me back on Twitter and um, was able to provide a lot of advice um, in the broad terms. I mean, the issue being I don't live in New York and two, I was actually living out of the country. So she couldn't really work with me, but she was a sounding board and I was able to kind of realize that I was in desperate need of help. Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> that's really interesting what you say about all of the women. You could find lots of women's voices out there, but you couldn't find any men that you could relate to. So um, how, how long was that period first? What was going through your head when you were reading all of these um, stories attributed to women with eating disorders? What, what did that mean in terms of how you saw yourself? Did that say to you, I don't have an eating disorder because I'm not a woman? Or did that say to you, I do have an eating disorder, but it's not being represented, I guess is what I'm interested in. Yeah, so great question. Um, first, I think from the start of when I, like I had heard the podcast and I was like, wow, I, maybe, maybe, I, maybe there is something wrong to when I finally was able to start getting help and looking into all this research and being like, <laughs> going back and forth of do I have an, a problem or not 
was probably a few months. And that was literally hell. Um, it was the most painful couple of months ever because not only are there no men that I could find that I could relate to, um, it was actually the opposite. And you go onto social media and or you go try to reach out to a man and it's, you see all these images of guys eating, um, you know, cakes and pizza, yet at the same time they're, you know, 0%, bo- they're whatever, like 5% body fat, they're shredded, they're ripped and, and they're able to talk about how they're eating all this stuff, yet they're carb cycling and all these complex um, diet techniques. But it was like, wait, I'm not achieving that. I'm gaining weight. At this point, I think at that time, I was the heaviest I'd ever been. I'd almost reached 265 pounds. However, the big issue was that if you saw me in the gym because of how hard I was working and I, and I was still lean, it was the biggest I'd ever been, but I may have looked very healthy and very fit and athletic. However, I had never been more unhealthy in my entire life. I mean, hormonally, um, energy-wise, I was so beat up and so depleted because I wasn't getting energy. I was binging on all this food. I would wake up um, so lackadaisical from food overload. Uh, There was one night I had, I don't know if you're familiar with the brand Quest Bars, they're a protein bar. And that was always my thing. I would binge on quote unquote healthy foods and, and kind of like my mind, I could justify it because it was somewhat of a, a healthy option. It wasn't like I was eating donuts. I, I had 22 quest bars in one night and I stopped just because financially it was ridiculous, especially down in Mexico. It's even more expensive than they are here. And, um, the big issue there was one, I woke up completely depressed Two, my stomach hurt because I had, I think there's 20 grams of fiber in one quest bar and I had 22. So for like five days, my stomach was killing me. Um, but it, it, it really was so difficult. And you see no men talking about it. You see the opposite when men are talking about it. And then all of a sudden I have to have my ego come into play and say, okay, there's all these women that talk about food disorders, but look at me. I've, I've accomplished so many things athletically. There's no way I can have something wrong with me, especially a food disorder or this some sort of bulimia or binge eating. Um, that how can that even be possible? I mean, I have so much going for me, yet at the same time, I've never been more depressed in my entire life. So it was very hard, and it just was this repeating cycle day in and day out that it was just the worst. Absolutely worse. I I know it. I went through a a long binge purge cycle um, on the latter end of coming out of anorexia. And um, it's interesting because a lot of people, especially if they have anorexia, are very scared that because a lot of us, and it's actually very natural um, after a period of restriction, it is very natural to binge. It doesn't feel nice, and it doesn't. It feels out of control, and but that that is a, a sort of natural um, bodily response to what what it sort of the body thinks of or the brain thinks of as a period of starvation. And um, in recovery from anorexia, when I stopped restricting, I then went into binge and restrict cycles. So just like you said, I would eat. I mean, you say you ate a pack of Quest. I know Quest bars. Um, I would go through a catering pack of. Um, protein bars in an evening 
after yeah. a day of restriction <laughs> quite easily. And yes. tubs of skip tubs, catering size tubs of skippy peanut butter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> from the spoon. No, don't rub with bread. But anyway, yep. but so that and then the next day I would get go to the gym and I'd work out and I would not eat all day and then I'd binge again in the evening and the hardest part, well, first of all, I had to understand that this was not the same as binge eating disorder. This was a binge purge, um, and it was it was binging due to restriction, um, which is very different from binge eating disorder, which is a different disorder altogether. But it is a fear of a person with an eating disorder, especially a restrictive one, that they're going to turn into um, it's going to turn into binge eating disorder or something like that. But it, I had to learn it was actually a natural response to restriction. And the hardest part was that I had to learn that the only way to stop the binges was to stop restricting completely and <laughs> utterly during the day. Yep. And you have to trust that because that means after a binge one night, I had to get up the next day and I had to eat a big breakfast and I had to eat a big snack and I had to eat a big lunch. And I had to keep eating that day and in order to eat, you know, eat enough so that I wasn't restricting and therefore my body would begin to trust that I was going to continue eating. And then the binging stopped. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's so funny that now it's funny at the time it wasn't. But once I had finally started to go through the recovery process, I think that was the most difficult part. All of a sudden I'm creating food journals and... I need to start planning out breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And my entire, you know, for the last three or four years, I, I really went into like a, a diet called intermittent fasting. So I was only eating for eight hours of the day, fasting for 16, was eating very small breakfast and lunch. And then once I started really binging at night, I would eliminate those breakfasts and lunch and I'd only have dinner. And uh, because I knew if I had this fear that if I ate anything else, it would just be extra calories. And going through the recovery process, all of a sudden now I'm trying to include breakfast and I'd show up, you know, week one and she's like, okay, now you have, we need to focus on breakfast. I'm like, great, I'll start eating breakfast. So I show up week two, I'm like, yeah, I had one egg. And she's <laughs> like, no, we're going to go ahead and need to have, you know, let's increase the eggs and let's have a piece of toast. And then week three was, let's have eggs, toast, and some cereal. Or I couldn't have cereal at the time because that was, that was like a danger food that came in later. But it was so incremental and so small along the way that it took me weeks before I can all of a sudden get the confidence to eat breakfast. And then I had to work on lunch, then a snack and then dinner. And then you're right. I mean, as soon as I started getting enough food throughout the day, I had no desire and I didn't binge for a long and I still like, I haven't binged and it's been kind of the process of just restructuring meals throughout the day, but it was, it couldn't have been more scary going through it. It's terrifying. It's so terrifying. And I mean, because that's the thing that the eating disorder is most scared of is, is eating normally and binging. And then, you, you know, for, that's what the eating disorder is terrified of. And that's what the eating disorder for me used to tell me would happen if I ate breakfast, lunch, dinner, and all the snacks in between and all the food during the day. That's, you know, terrifying for somebody with a restrictive eating disorder. Um, right. But it's not true. Or it wasn't true for me, and it hasn't been true for the um, a lot of people that I've worked with. What is true is once we stop restricting, we stop binging after a while. Because there's often a bit of a lag, which is scary as well. Exactly.
Um, so, so tell me a little bit more about your recovery process. <laughs> Once again, I think it was so challenging. And if, if somebody, I, I think the first day I went in to, for my consultation, she's like, you know, it's going to be normally at least a 20 week process. And I think one financially, I was like, what? I was like, no, I've, I've, I can do this in three weeks. This won't be an issue. This isn't covered by insurance. I better get it. I better get it figured out in three weeks. I can't afford 20 weeks. And, uh, once you, once I went in and, and started going through the process and it was so difficult mentally because I had just moved home from Mexico um, in the last year, my mom had passed away, a lot of family things going on. And here I am, I feel like I'm back at the first step of being like, what I want to do with life. I'm, I'm back in California. I don't know which angle to go with jobs or any of that stuff. So the biggest pressure I had was I would talk to people and they'd say, what are you up to? And I never wanted to dive into this concept of an eating disorder. And, and I was so embarrassed about it. Um, and primarily because if I did, the, some of the closest people I brought it up with, they would, the first thing they'd say is, no way. Like, look at you. You're, you're in great shape. What are you talking about? You have an eating disorder. And I would then have to spend 20 minutes trying to convince them. So I really stayed away from it. And so to go and you're out and about with your friends and like, what are you up to? You're back to Mexico. Like, were you looking for work? This and that. And really, I was in no place to try to find a job because like I said, I'm going through this internal battle of incorporating breakfast, incorporating lunch, incorporating dinner, trying to prevent binges. Um, even, you know, one of the parts of recovery was I had to really limit how much I was working out. Really, Megan wanted to eliminate workouts. And I just couldn't do that because I didn't have anything else going on throughout the day. So I needed at least a break to go to the gym. And, but I had stopped cardio. I was doing very minimal workouts, which for the first time in probably six years had happened. Normally I was working out seven days a week for three hours. And um, it was a very long and stressful process just because it was so secretive. I felt like I wasn't accomplishing anything and, you know, a big accomplishment in my life, which I would celebrate with Megan was all of a sudden I'm, I'm including a snack. And I think one of the biggest <laughs> achievements was when I was able to have one bowl of cereal, but I couldn't go out and tell anybody else about it because nobody would understand, especially from the male, male friends. I think I had one, there's a, uh, one of my close friends as a girl that I could relate to who had and was very public about her eating disorder. But outside of that, nobody else could comprehend this concept. Yeah, and I, I, I know exactly. Um, well, so, so, so some similarities, some differences with uh, anorexia. I, I didn't really ever have to volunteer the information that or people saying you don't look sick because I looked horrendous. But right. I also understand and have worked with a lot of people with bulimia and other types of eating disorders where you can't tell to look at them that they have an eating disorder. And it's so difficult to make other people understand the level of mental um, chaos and pain that 
any person with an eating disorder is in. And I always say that whatever a person, however a person presents physically, that is the tip of the iceberg as to what is going on inside them. And so, you know, even if a person looks drastically underweight or, or whatever, that's just the tip of what, it, compared to what's going on in the brain, the obsessions around food and the obsessions around exercise and everything else, it's absolutely nothing. And I think that it's even more difficult for a person who does present as what people consider to be healthy looking or normal to feel that they are understood or supported. No question, without a doubt. I mean, the yeah, I have some journals, and I, I had, I had a feeling at the time I needed to write down some of my thoughts of what I was going through because the day in and day out, the mental, like you said, the mental chaos and the this concept of when can I eat, what can I eat, how much can I eat, when can I eat next, when am I going to work out. It literally is so draining and for somebody that doesn't understand it, I mean, it literally, it took over and consumed my entire day. I would, I would be having, that's, that was one of the nights that I realized I really have a problem was I was at one of my closest friend's house and I was having a conversation with them and I remember talking for a good 15, 20 minutes. And all of a sudden I kind of felt like I snapped back into it and realized I had no clue what we were talking about. And that the only thing I was thinking about was if, um, was if Target was going to be open on the way home so I could stop and get cereal. Yeah. Oh, Patrick, I know, I know that one so well. And I think one of the most devastating parts for me, of the way the eating disorder ruined my relationships with everybody is because I could not be present with anyone. I yes. really couldn't. Yeah, that I mean, and, and it, the worst part was like we were having a very, it wasn't like we were just talking about what we did that day. It was like a very um, deep conversation that we were having and that, the, and that they were confiding in me. And I remember I snapped out of it and was like, I literally have no idea what they just said. And the entire time, I'm only concerned about, I'm like, okay, it's 11.30. I know it closes at midnight. If I leave here in the next 20, and it was like this, I was playing out the entire drive home. And I snapped out of it and was just like, I can't do this anymore. Like I, that was my life. That was literally day in and day out what was happening. And what, and compared to now, um, because that takes a long time that the mental aspects take a really long time to recover from. So where would you say that you are with that now? It's still a work in progress. Um, you know, I think some of the biggest accomplishments I have, and, and um, I have a girlfriend now that I've been dating, and she's been absolutely amazing and supportive. And one of the biggest things that I, <laughs> that was really hard at first, but it was so exciting for me. It was hard just because I couldn't necessarily tell her, um, and she couldn't really understand. But I remember... When we started dating and I had volunteered to go get ice cream and in my head, I was like, wait a second. I remember thinking afterwards and it was just, it was like I was experiencing life again. And I remember being like, wow, a couple months ago, I could not have had ice cream. That would have been one, it was forbidden. Two, it would have created some sort of extra binge. But like now I was at a place where I could go enjoy life and enjoy spending time with people and but 
it is still definitely a work in progress. I mean, there's definitely times where I get done eating lunch and I'm like, okay, what am I eating for dinner? Or <laughs> like, um, it's still a battle that I have, but um, it's, it has improved drastically. And I, and I would say, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I know when I was looking and I was so confused about the information out there and to like which direction to go in, I remember I was at a, like a fork in the road as far as which sort of recovery to go and approach. And I looked at the one where it was kind of that, it was a, the AA philosophy where, okay, I know my trigger foods are what quote unquote sugars or especially cereal. And this approach of being like, okay, well then I need to eliminate cereal. And I was at my best friend's house and that was when I, I was watching him playing with his kids and I thought to myself, I was like, how can I ever go down that path when all of a sudden, if I have kids and when I have kids down the line and I say, no, you no, little Patrick, you can't have cereal now because daddy can't eat it versus the CBT approach. And, and although it was <laughs> very difficult to eventually reach the points where I'm at now and time consuming, um, I'm very grateful I did, and it allows me to be in a place where I am now. Yeah, it's um, it's it's really difficult as well, and it's additionally um, difficult, I think, for adult sufferers of, of any type of eating disorder. There's a lot of bad information out there. Um, there's also a lot of alternative theories out there, um, and there's... Yeah, there's a lot of information that's not necessarily helpful. There's information that might be helpful to some people, but then is not helpful to others. And I think an individualistic approach is, is really important because these are disorders that affect us um, behaviorally, mentally, emotionally. They are impacted by stressors and things that are external to our lives, despite the, despite the fact that they are internally sort of, you know, they're brain-based illnesses. They are impacted by environmental factors. Um, and so I think that I actually identify it somewhat with what you say about how when you were looking for information, you didn't identify with any of the people that were telling stories about bulimia. Well, in your case, because they were women. For me, with when I, I had anorexia, um, I didn't think that I could have anorexia because I didn't want to be thin and I didn't go on a diet because I hated my body. And that's what I was told. Girls who have anorexia have anorexia because they don't like the way that they look. And that wasn't true for me. And so these stereotypes can really alienate us and make us then therefore feel that either we don't have the illness because we don't fit the stereotype or treatment doesn't apply to us because the treatment for um, anorexia, especially at the time that I was recovering, was geared towards teenage girls who were on diets because they wanted to be supermodels. And I wasn't that person. I was an adult and I, I certainly wasn't interested in being skinny, but I still had this illness. And so I, that's why I think talking in the way where you are now, which is very brave, to share your story and say, hey, this happens to guys just as much as it happens to girls, we're just not talking about it, is very important. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like you said, it's very, it's very much on an individual basis, but I do know, especially in the sports world, um, it is, 
and I am not a licensed professional, I am not a therapist, I am not an expert, any of that stuff, but I see so many similarities in a lot of my friends that resort to food when they're stressed or they have this concept that they can't eat certain things. And it's just, there's so many um, dangers involved, especially in the sports world, especially in the, especially in the fitness world. Um, and pretty much anywhere you look, there's some sort of do or don't when it comes to food. And um, it is, there's just no clear message and especially on the male front. Yeah. And um, a lot of the behaviors that I can, I, you and I or anybody else that really knows anything or has had an eating disorder view um, as eating disorder behaviors are actually widely accepted in, as, as healthy behaviors sometimes by the general population, which is, makes it ultra conflicting and confusing. No question. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's been the biggest thing that I've now experienced as far as um, the more research I've done into kind of science-based nutrition and these, I would say it's science-based versus bro science is a way that I would describe it, bro science being some guy on social media is saying, you know, you can only eat broccoli because bread will make you fat or don't eat white rice because it will make you fat or whatever it might be. And there's very little science, there's very little anything involved when, and it, all it does is just create so much controversy and so many misleading beliefs that it's just so hard to sit back and watch now. Yeah, and also because people are so enthusiastic, they get behind. I love bro science, by the way. Stealing that, that can be yeah. word, word of the week, bro science. <laughs> um, one of the, the, people get behind their bro science with such enthusiasm as well. That this is the you know this is what's going to make this is what's going to make your life wonderful. Just do this thing. Exact and or and or the opposite, the negative side. I mean. I, I do my best to not not even get involved in the conversations when I hear it of, you know, don't eat this because if you do, it will make you fat or it will make you this. And there's so much negative connotation to food as well that it's so hard. And you, and you try to just ask somebody, okay, where are you getting this? And they get so defensive. That's the generally, especially, you know, 90% of the time I'm in the gym now, I have to listen to headphones just because... You hear these conversations and you're just like, oh, like I, <laughs> I was once that guy. And that's the problem is uh, it's just so misleading out there. Yeah. And um, it, I think that, again, recognizing that that is the problem and then working out for the individual how, how that problem is to be dealt with. Um, for me, I had, to, I had such a problem um, with exercise that I had to cold turkey the exercise. It, I could not actually do any exercise without that enforcing eating disorder behaviors for me. The only real way that I could stop that compulsion um, was to completely stop for a couple of years. And it was the best decision I ever made, but it wasn't yeah. easy. And it took me 10 years of trying to make that decision to get there, frankly. Um, you know, and I, I would definitely agree with that because I know that <laughs> for me, especially when I was going through recovery, the gym was kind of all I had to look forward to because I couldn't, I wasn't working. I wasn't, all I was doing day in and day out was this internal hell and this internal monologue going back and forth with myself about food, my body image and all that stuff that when she's like, 
you know, I really don't want you, how would you feel about not working out right now? And I literally almost had a heart attack. Like I was like, I go, look, I'm willing to do anything, but that's not one. I was, it was, you know, and <laughs> like I said, I was able to make a compromise with her. And I think because she knew where I stood with that, looking back, I definitely think it, I mean, I should have fully gone for it, but it was the scariest thing in my entire life. I couldn't, I couldn't give that up, especially when I'm battling this issue of, you want me to start eating more food than I ever have in hopes that I'll not binge. But if I can't go to the gym to work it off or can't go to the gym because that's another form of therapy for me, um, I don't know what I was going to do. I was going to go insane. Yeah, and, and um, I, I hear that. I, I said those very things and I hear that 10 times a week, <laughs> no less. No question, um, yeah. And also, but, but most of the time, the, the fact that when I say to someone, how about you just didn't exercise for a week? The stronger they resist that, the more indication that that is exactly what they need to do. No you question. Is that, what's that saying? Like, whatever you fear, what you need to do the most or whatever it is. And, and I knew it. Like I knew when she said it, my reaction and my gut instinct like, was like really that was the only thing that would make me quit, like quit therapy. And I knew in my mind and I, and I think – maybe she's brilliant or maybe I won, I don't know, being able to compromise and, and kind of go quote unquote, very light in the gym. Um, I know the right thing would have been to definitely take that week off, especially or whatever that amount of time off, because the long-term benefits definitely outweigh that short-term, um, satisfaction. Oh yeah. And, um, the other thing, a part of this that I find is interesting, and you've said it a couple of times now, you all you had was the gym, and that's that's what you had in your day. And I think that's that another part of that is that if you take that away, you fill that space. It's lonely for the first couple of days, but then you begin to fill that space with other things and people and different sorts of activities that are more pro-recovery activities. I, com I completely agree. I think the issue that I had um, was that I didn't feel like I had any sort of identity. I mean, I had lived 25 years of my life as a football player, and I was that guy. And that was, that was people who knew me, at, knew me as, as being an athlete and whatnot. And once that was stripped away, my only sort of identity was the guy that was in good shape and hoping, you know, and, and that was definitely, I would not approve of those conversations now. It was pretty much this concept that if I reach a certain body fat, I will be happy. And you're right, being able to eliminate that would have forced me to go make new friends, take up new hobbies, this and that. But that was literally my only foundation. It's still... Like I said, I mean, as far as for where I'm at in my life, I'm still trying to figure out what really makes me passionate. And I definitely know that speaking about the disordered eating is, has provoked a new passion for me. You know, I go to the mountains with my girlfriend and, and I, I'm not going to be at the gym for two days. I think a big step for me is I don't freak out about it. Mm. Not a big deal. Nothing's going to be accomplished or not accomplished by not going. But before, especially when I lived in Mexico, I mean, I missed out on so much 
life because it was always this concept of like, hey, do you want to go on a boat today? But like, yeah, I mean, if you guys want to wait till two or three after the gym, I'll, I'll definitely go. If not, don't worry about it. And I, I mean, that was a once in a lifetime opportunity when instead I'm just stuck in the gym doing the same thing, beating up my body. Um, so I've definitely, and through recovery, through realizing it's not the end of the world if you, you know, and actually how much more I enjoy life when I eat a donut or go out to ice cream with my girlfriend versus not doing it. Um, it's really helped me find myself and who I am and, and given me a lot more strength as a person. Yeah. Um, Patrick, I would love to, um, if, if you would have, if you have anything advice or anything to say to somebody that might sort of be thinking, listening to this and thinking, wow, that sounds a bit like me. <laughs> if you're thinking that, then there's probably something there. Um, I would say my biggest advice would be don't be afraid to ask for help. I was so scared and, and reaching out to people that are in those positions that know what they're talking about and to ask for five minutes of their time. Um, I was amazed with how much support there really is if you're willing to seek it. So if somebody does relate, um, go out and, and find a professional. That would be my biggest thing and, and see what they have to say. And don't be afraid of the process. It will be long. <laughs> At least in my case, it was long. Who knows? Maybe it won't be. But it, I feel like I'm living, I'm seeing a whole new perspective in life and it couldn't, couldn't have been more worth it. Yeah. It, that's another thing I think that people vastly underestimate is the length of the process. It takes a long time to recover from a mental illness, and that's what these are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, like I said, I went into it thinking, you know, I've, <laughs> I've accomplished harder things in my life. I mean, I could start, I could start eating normal again. That's, that's going to take three weeks. This, what are they talking about? 20 weeks minimum. And uh, it, it definitely takes a while, but... Um, and it's hard going through it. Like I said, it's celebrating the fact that I'm having bread on my sandwich as opposed to just lettuce. Um, it's a, it's a very small reward, but very gratifying. <laughs> and, uh, you just have to find a way to enjoy the process. Patrick, do, do you have a blog or any, any other way that people can find out more about you? Um, I am on social media throughout there. I know I've had a lot of wonderful feedback and people reach out to me. Um, via Instagram and or Facebook and it's um, both of those are just my name Patrick Deveni um, I am hoping to start a blog and, and kind of see where this can go um, I think part of that is kind of scary because I'm not quote unquote a professional but at the same time I'm somebody that's been through it so if yeah. I can be an advocate in any way or if anyone would just love you know some sort of uh, knowing that they're not the only only one going through it, then absolutely um, they can reach out to me. Um, I check those frequently. Yeah, and I will link to those in the show notes. Thank you very much, Patrick. Of course, thank you. And a big thank you to Patrick for coming onto the podcast, sharing his experience with us and inspiring, really, and people to talk out more, I think, and especially men 
come forward and start talking about these things because you're not the only one. It's never going to be the case, even though it can seem like that when you're looking around and, and you're doing Google research and you're not seeing any stories about men with eating disorders. They are there. I promise that they are. So I really am thankful for Patrick for coming forward and being a voice there for, for guys with eating disorders. And the other thing to remember is that the treatment is out there too. It's really finding the treatment that works for you. And when I say the treatment that works for you, I don't necessarily mean the treatment that feels okay or that feels comfortable. Recovery from an eating disorder is difficult. And because of that, treatment often feels like Patrick described, there's a lot of resistance and I don't want to do that. And even though deep down, you know, that's exactly what you have to do. So always be looking for the support in treatment that is going to help you, enable you to push yourself through those really hard patches and push yourself through those resistances. Because it's really the biggest resistances that are the keys to overcoming some of the major parts of eating disorders. For me, exercise was one of those. That was so difficult for me to stop doing it. But after years of trying and years of saying to myself, I'll just do 20 minutes less in the gym tomorrow, or I'll just eat more tomorrow to make up for the 20 minutes extra I did in the gym today, whatever it was. After years of these negotiation cycles and after years of noticing that that just wasn't working. And I think a famous person once said that the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same result. That, that's what was happening to me when I was trying to just slowly wean myself off exercise or slowly eat more. So for me, the real course to recovery was just saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I don't care how hard it's going to be and how much I dislike the thought of not going to the gym anymore. I'm not going because something has to change. I also had to do that with food. No matter, I, I, meal plans and slow increments did not work for me because I would never really increment them. So I had to go to, I'm just going to start eating and I'm not going to stop eating until I weight restore or at least start rate restoring or until I'm a healthy weight. And so different approaches work for different people. But I do think there's a big clue in that whatever you feel resistance to is likely the thing that needs to change the most. And um, really, again, thank you for Patrick for coming on and talking about that and being very honest about that resistance. Because I think that when we hear other people talk about the things that they struggle with the most, it helps us identify the things in ourselves that we might not want to admit. <laughs> Just before we end today, I am excited to tell you about a new meal support service that actually I've started for people with eating disorders. And you might think that this is just designed for people with anorexia, but it's actually designed for people, yes, with anorexia and other forms of eating disorder, uh, but also for bulimia and for binge eating disorder as well. So if you're wondering why a person might need meal support, well, it's a bit like this. Those of us that are in active recovery, and by that I mean we really want to recover, we are trying our best, and maybe we're working with a treatment team. The problem is, is that when it comes down to actually eating that food, if we're on our own, 
the levels of stress that we are feeling, stress and intense anxiety around eating, even if we really want to get better, can cause us not to do it. It would be, for example, um, say if you were scared of snakes and every day to get over this fear of snakes, somebody had told you, a therapist had told you, oh, you have to go and take, you have to go and pet a snake every day. Now, if you walked into that room with a snake and there was no one else there and the fear and anxiety about touching that snake hit you, even though you knew that the snake was harmless and it was a friendly snake, if there was no one there to say to you, come on, you can do this, do you think you'd do it? That's a bit what um, mealtimes can be like from somebody recovering from an eating disorder. It can be really difficult, but having somebody there, a friendly voice, to say, you've got this, you can do this, come on, I'm here with you, that can make all of the difference. So that's what meal support is. And we have, during meal support, 30-minute sessions, post-meal support for those of us that get anxiety after eating or um, maybe participate in purging activities and want to stop those and also um, support for binge eating disorder so please help me spread the word about this i'm offering a 40 percent discount on the usual fee per session for people who are going to use it for the first time so you can just try it um, and i also just want to give a big shout out to carl copley from cybertech design for helping me with a website he did a fabulous job there and i really could not have done this without carl Anybody interested in checking out the meal support online service, then I will link to it in the show notes and you can have a look. Maybe give me your feedback as well. The service is there for you. Anyway, guys, thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for podcast um, topics of conversation or guests, people that you would like me to talk to, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm here and I'm all ears.